Again, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1. We're spending more time on this first chapter than no doubt we will spend on any other chapter in the Bible, in the book of Genesis, I should say, and uh, this has a lot to do with the fact that it is so much under attack in our day. As we consider the various days of creation, we come to the fourth day, and verses 19, excuse me, 14 through 19 address that day. So let's pray, let's uh, read beginning with verse 14. Then God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven, or the expanse of the heavens, to divide the day from the night. And let them be for signs and seasons, and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens, to give light on the earth. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. God saw that it was good. So the evening and morning were the fourth day. Once again, let's pray for the blessing of God on his word. Holy Father, we thank you and bless you that by your great power you made these vast galaxies that surround us. You made the sun, the moon, you made this earth, you made us, you made man in his own in your own image. And we do thank you that throughout this chapter we see evidences of your care, the way you intended to prepare a place for mankind, a place where all of his physical needs would be met. And we do thank you that you have not only set before us a physical table, so to speak, but also in your word, we have a spiritual table. And therefore, we pray that as we uh, take up these thoughts, that our hearts would be also fed, and that we would rejoice in that which we read and that which we study out of your word, even this day. Teach us by the power of your spirit, we pray. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, up to this point in this series... We've covered what took place in the first three days of creation. The creation of light and the separation from light from darkness on day one. The separation of the waters and the atmosphere above from the waters below. And this was on day two. And then the separation of the land from the waters and then also the filling of that land with herbage, with vegetation, plant life on day three. And each part of this creation narrative is a repudiation of pagan myths that were popular in the nations that surrounded ancient Israel. For instance, the Babylonian creation account in the document known as the Enuma Elish, this is especially detailed, more detailed than any of the other accounts that we have. At the beginning of the creation story, the reader is introduced to two deities, and there's Tiamat, the female god who represents the fresh waters. And then there's Apsu, who represents the salt waters. And their waters mingle, suggesting intercourse, and they produce a new generation of gods. 
And these divine children, who were worshipped by the Babylonians, they disturbed the sleep of their parents. Apsu, the father, he determined, therefore, to kill the children in spite of Tiamat's objections. But one of the younger gods, Ea, the god of wisdom, learned about this plot, and he killed his father by a preemptive strike, and he set up his throne on the corpses of his, uh, the corpse of his father. And in this way, he subdued the primeval floodwaters represented by his father. But this act then enraged his mother, who sought vengeance, and she determined to war against her children by the help of a demonic horde that was headed by Kingu. And confronted by this threat, Ea knew that he was no match for his mother, so he issued a challenge to the divine assembly for a champion to step forward. And that champion was none other than his son Marduk. And Marduk agreed to fight Tiamat on the condition that if he won, the divine assembly would agree to make him king of the pantheon. So this is how the Babylonian religion Marduk becomes the chief god. And so in this way, the Babylonian document explains how Marduk became the most important of the Babylonian pantheon. And the battle between Marduk and Tiamat, it was ferocious. But Marduk eventually conquered and killed Tiamat. And after this victory, he created the cosmos. And just to quote exactly now here from this document, he, of course, I'm quoting the translation, he calmed down. And then the Lord was inspecting her carcass, that he might divide the monstrous lump and fashion artful things. He, he split her in two like a fish for drying. Half of her he set up as, and he made as a cover, heaven. And he stretched out the hide and assigned watchmen and ordered them not to let her waters escape. So we have the waters above heaven, the waters below. And uh, you have the gods that represent each one of these. And in this way, Enuma Elish tells us how Marduk's conflict with Tiamat, the primordial waters, how this led to the creation of the skies from which the rains flow, as well as the waters that are here below. And to create land, he then pushed back her waters and he established boundaries around the land. And in a passage that follows this, he takes the gods, the rest of them, and he places them in the heavens as the stars. So this tells us where we get the sun and the moon and the stars. They're all gods to be worshipped, and that's what they were worshipped in ancient Babylonian religion. Well, I trust you can see that there is a stark contrast that exists between this myth and all of its hatred and warfare among the gods and so forth and the Genesis account. And one by one, the items that are in this account repudiate that ancient myth. It repudiates, for instance, the idea of, of the way in which there was the separation of waters from above from those below, and the separation of the land from the waters, and the creation of the sun and the moon and the stars. And we've looked at part of that already, the separation of the waters and the separation of the land from the waters. But also there is a difference, and we're going to see it this morning, between that old tale and what the scriptures teach us about the sun, moon, and the stars. Because the Bible teaches us that these are created entities. These are not gods. They are created entities, and they are servants to serve the creator and to serve those that God is going to raise up by way of creation, even the man and the woman. And in this passage that we read, there's a progression from light in general to unspecified light in general. That's, first of all, what we have on day one. It's unspecified. Let there be light, he says. 
It doesn't describe any particular body of light, but now we come to specific sources of light, to luminaries, as we might put it. And these sources of light, they're first described simply by an all-inclusive form. In verse 14, they're called lights, they're called luminaries. But right away in verse 14, we are informed that these luminaries, they are not the creators of light. They're not ultimately the source of light, they're the mediators of light. They're the light bearers that God made. God alone is light. God alone creates light. And he's already spoken it into existence on the first day. But now on the fourth day, he concentrates it. He crystallizes it in these moving entities in the heavens. And all of this takes place on the fourth day. John Calvin carefully describes what takes place. He says, God had before created the light. But he now institutes a new order in nation, excuse me, a new order in nature, that the sun should be dispenser of diurnal light, and the moon and the stars should be should shine by night. And he assigns them to this office to teach us that all creatures are subject to his will and execute what he enjoins upon them. You see what he's saying? That this passage is teaching these are creatures. And they're servants. They do God's will. For Moses relates nothing else than that God ordained certain instruments to diffuse through the earth that light which had previously been created. The only difference is this, that the light that was before dispersed now proceeds from lucid bodies which in serving this purpose obey the command of God. Well, as we go through this passage, we're going to consider uh, four main headings. We want to look first of all at the production or the creation of the luminaries and then secondly the purpose of these luminaries. Thirdly the particular luminaries. They are the sun, the moon, and the stars. And then finally the perfection of these luminaries. And I kind of had a feeling when I wrote this whole outline and I thought about everything I wanted to include that there's no way I'm going to cover all of this in one sermon. So even though we haven't done this on other days, uh, there is so much in the Bible, and there's so much that is important for us to understand about creation that we're going to take, God willing, two sermons to preach about this subject. But we want to begin, first of all, with the production or the creation of these luminaries. We read in verse 14, Then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens. I want you to notice a few things about this initial statement here. And first of all, notice about the production of these luminaries that it involves production by a divine fiat. Again, God speaks words. Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens. He speaks and it's done. And so we read in this passage that it's not like he took billions of years to shape it and to wear it all down and put it in different do all this kind of stuff that the evolutionists teach us. No, he spoke. It's all done. And think of it. At God's command, at God's command, suddenly the sun, the moon, and all the galaxies of stars suddenly spring into existence. It's stupendous. It's only one power that could do this, the power of Almighty God. By the word of the Lord and the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth, the vast host of these galaxies, 
by his word, by his speaking, they're brought into existence. And so let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. Psalm 33. So notice that that this is production by divine fiat. Let there be. He, He speaks the word and it's done. But then notice secondly that what we have in this opening statement is a problem for the doctrine of evolution. I call it a doctrine because that's what it is. It's a by faith statement. They think it's fact, but it's just by faith. And there's a problem for this, especially with those that try to harmonize the Bible with the theory of evolution. And simply put, the creation of the sun, along with the other heavenly bodies, this comes after the creation of the earth. The whole evolutionary plot of the geology and everything, it assumes that the earth comes later on. It's all these big heavenly bodies, first of all, they're first created. But deliberately in this passage, this chapter, it's the other way around. It's these, the earth is created, and then these heavenly bodies are brought into their place, and they come to take their roles in the giving of light and so forth to the church, or to the, to the, to the earth. Now, according to these Bible believers that try to get millions of years into this, into Genesis chapter 1, this is a problem. You see, they claim that what really happened here in the fourth day, and they could say days in quotes, this is a big age, millions of years in this day, if you want to call it that. What really happened in the fourth day, they say, was that the sun and the other heavenly bodies, they appeared. And they say, well, they actually existed earlier on, but now the dense cloud layer is removed from the earth, and now they appear after millions of years. And in this way, they suppose they can accommodate the evolutionary assumption that the sun has to be existent before the uh, earth, that it breaks, the earth breaks away from the sun, and all of that is included in the evolutionary scheme. And this is not only fanciful science, but it is very bad exegesis of Hebrews 1, especially the Hebrew text. And notice what we read in verse 15. Then God made two lights, two great lights. The Hebrew word that's translated may, it's made, it's the Hebrew word asa. There's two Hebrew words for create in this chapter. There's the word asa, he made here. And then there's also another word, the word create. Bara is the other Hebrew word that's used throughout this chapter. And the Hebrew word translated asa or make is often used interchangeably in this chapter with the word bara or create. And notice the beginning of verses 26 and 27. Verse 26. Then let us make asa man in our own image. Verse 27, so God created bara, that's the other word, man in his own image. You see the point here. The same event is being described. The ver- one verse says he makes man, the other one says he creates man, using two different Hebrew words, and although there's a shade of difference between them, they're basically interchangeable words. And therefore it is exegetical desperation 
to apply a different meaning to the same word in the same grammatical construction and in the same passage just to make the biblical account harmonize with the atheistic theory of the Big Bang. If God meant that the two great lights, the sun and the moon, just appeared in verse 14, he would have used a different word. And in fact, that word is even used in this chapter because we read later on that he, 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 the dry land appears. It appears as the waters are gathered together in one place on day three, as you read of it in verse nine. But that word appear, ra'ah, in the Hebrew, that's not used here. It's the word he made, which is interchangeable with create. And so this is very plain. He made these bodies on that day, the sun and the moon, stars. And then we should notice here, before we move on, that this theory of a previously existing sun appearing now on the fourth day, this overlooks the fact that God can create light without the use of a second source. The Bible clearly tells us that God created light as well as the earth on the first day. And at first, darkness covered the face of the deep, verse 2. But God said, let there be light. And nothing is said in verse 3 about this light being concentrated in some kind of source, like the sun or some, like the moon, some kind of entity. It's not spoken of in that way. God simply says, let there be light. And so this teaches us that God can easily create light without having to make a sun or any other heavenly entity. We are told in the new heavens and the new earth, for instance, that there's going to be no need for the sun. There's going to be no need for the moon because God's glory will illuminate it. And then in the new Jerusalem, the lamb will be its lamp. Revelation 21 23. And so on the first day, there is light without there being the sun. But now that light is concentrated in the sun and by reflection in the moon. And prior to the creation of the sun, God was perfectly capable of illuminating the earth without the use of the sun. On day one, light was created. And on day one, God ordained the daily sequence of light and darkness of, of every day. And he did this without the use of the sun. Now we happen to think that, well, how do you do this without the sun? Because we have day and night because the earth rotates and half of it is dark because it's facing away from the sun. And at the same time, the other half is light. And it has to be a sun, you say. So there must have been a sun right to begin with. That's the way some would argue. But commenting on verse 3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. John Calvin writes, the Lord, by the very order of the creation, bears witness that he holds in his hand the light which he is able to impart to us without the sun and the moon. Further, from the context, it is certain that the light was so created to be interchanged with darkness or to alternate with darkness. There is no doubt that the order of their succession was alternate. Well, Calvin, he wonders in this whole discussion, whether the alternation between light and darkness originally took place simultaneously throughout the whole world, that somehow the whole world enjoyed day at the same time and the whole world enjoyed darkness at the same time, or whether it was alternating uh, at different times. 
But with a basic knowledge of modern astronomy, the solution is, is much easier. All it takes to have a day-night cycle is a rotating Earth and to have light coming from one direction so that when it rotates, it rotates away from that light source and then later on rotates back into that light source. And it's likely that on day one, the Earth was already rotating in space and there was a light source, it's not the sun yet, a light source on, coming from one direction and it is illuminating half of the Earth at that time. So we observe, therefore, you see, that it's fanciful science and even bad exegesis to claim that there was the Earth just or the sun appearing and so forth, and it wasn't actually created on the fourth day. It actually existed right from the very beginning. And our third observation about verse 14, and just hang with me here a little bit, it tells us about the production or the creation of the luminaries that they contain, and this contains an implicit prohibition of paganism. Having the sun created on day four after the impartation of light on day one, this would have been very significant in the context of pagan worldviews. The people who are around the Israelites, they worshiped the sun, they worshiped the moon, and so on. And they were surrounded by nations whose religions, there was a widespread proliferation of astral deities, various stars being various gods. And the sun and the moon and the stars were all worshipped as divine. And the sun in particular was worshipped as the source of all light and life. It's the chief god in Egypt. And God is saying that these heavenly luminaries, they're not eternal. I can provide light before I create these things. They were created things, furthermore. And they're created to serve, not to be served. And here in our text, God is making it unmistakably clear that the sun is secondary to himself as the source of everything. God doesn't need the sun in order to create and sustain life. Well, this is what we wanted to say about the production of these luminaries. But now I want to come in our, to our second major heading, the purposes of these luminaries. We find this out again, beginning in verse 14. We read in the middle of the verse that he created these lights to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. Verse 15, and let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And then in verse 17, God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. Now what are the purposes, therefore, for these heavenly beings? First of all, they're given to separate day from night, verse 14. And this doesn't mean that the sun is the cause of the daytime, because daytime already existed on day one. To divide or to separate one thing from another and to distinguish between those two things, it assumes that those things existed to begin with. And so God ordained the sun to serve the earth by day and the moon to serve the earth by night. And in this way, they became signs for distinguishing those two periods of time. This is the first purpose, to separate day from night. And the second purpose of these luminaries is to serve as signs and seasons, days and years. 
as we read at the end of verse 14. Now the verb that's translated, let them be, it can also be translated, let them serve. Let them serve for this purpose, as signs and seasons, and for days, and for years. And again, these heavenly bodies, they're not gods to be worshipped. They're not to be served. They are the servants. God says, let them serve these purposes. They were servants created in order to serve the needs of the inhabitants of the earth that God was going to create. And what did they serve as? First of all, they served as signs. The Hebrew word ought is often used with reference to miraculous signs or with reference to a covenant. For instance, there is the word ought for sign, the sign of a rainbow. You remember when Noah and his family, they came out of the ark and, got, and they offered sacrifice and God gave the rainbow as a sign of the covenant that he made with the earth. But here the word is followed by a reference to seasons. It's somehow connected to the idea of seasons. And so I don't think it's talking about a covenant or something like that. It doesn't seem that the intention is spiritual really, but it rather is more natural. It's likely that the word refers to the way that the heavenly bodies in a natural way provide direction, provide signs. For centuries, sailors looked to the constellations of the stars as a navigational tool. They used these to plot their way through the massive Atlantic and Pacific oceans. And Job refers to this. In Job 38, 31 to 33, he refers to the Pleiades, the belt of Orion, and the great bear as the ordinances of the heavens. And also the luminaires, these are signs of God's glory. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Psalm 19 and verse 1 tells us. So these are signs to give directions to man on the earth, etc. Connected with the signs are seasons. In Psalm 104, the poetic version of Genesis 1, we read that God appointed the moon for seasons. The seasons, they occur as a result of the tilt of the earth's axis. That's how we have our, our, our seasons. Earth is tilted 23 and a half degrees. And because it goes around the sun at that tilt, halfway around it's getting less light on the northern hemisphere, more light on the southern, and vice versa six months later. And it's because of that tilt that we have the seasons of the year. And this reference to seasons, it seems to indicate that the earth's axis was already tilted by the fourth day of creation. Now this is a very interesting fact. There are some creationists that they have argued that the Earth's axis was vertical before the flood. And that the tilting of the axis of the Earth, this was vertical, but then a drastic change changed it. It went from vertical to tilted at 23 and a half degrees. And yet this would make the seasons impossible. And furthermore, computer modeling suggests that an upright axis would make temperature differences between the poles and the equator far more extreme than it is right now and make much of the earth more uninhabitable than it is right now. And while we now have the current tilt of 23 and a half degrees, which is the ideal 
tilt. Now, there are some people that have conjectured that before the flood, the Earth's axis was vertical, as I just said. But there was a sudden tipping of its axis at the flood. And they theorized that a huge asteroid hit the Earth and shifted it so that it got tilted the way it is right now. But according to Genesis chapter 7 and verse 11, it wasn't the tilt of the earth that brought on the flood. The primary cause of the flood was that, quote, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth. And a second cause is that the windows of the heavens were open. It says nothing about the earth being tilted at that point. In his massive commentary on Genesis 1 through 11, scientist Dr. Jonathan Sephardi, he provides detailed scientific objections to this theory of an asteroid tilting the earth and I'm not going to go into all the details sometimes as I read the many pages that this this man writes I'm not a scientist so I have to scratch my head it's kind of deep science at points but I think I can give you the basic idea here with great detail he argues that even the impact of an asteroid as the as large as the biggest one that's ever been known to mankind, this would not have the ability to shift or tilt the Earth. The largest one that's ever been discovered is the asteroid Ceres, which is 590 miles in diameter. Well, that's pretty big. That's almost two-thirds of the way to Iowa for me. That big of a, that's a huge, huge piece of land, that uh, a rock, I would say, that this would cause a lot of damage, obviously, if it hit the Earth. It would be catastrophic, it would be devastating, but this could not change the Earth's axis. Why? Because even that size of a rock, 590 miles in diameter, it is still only one six-thousandth of the size of the Earth itself. Or to put it the other way around, the Earth is 6,000 times more massive than Ceres. So it would be, you know, like somebody throwing a baseball at you and somehow you're going to get all tilted because of it. It's a, that's not even a very good illustration. Baseball is probably bigger in proportion. You're not 6,000 times probably bigger than a, than a baseball. But you get the point. Maybe a ball, golf ball would be the picture. And so this isn't something that could have tilted the earth the way these people theorize. And these heavenly bodies, we should all also notice, they serve. And they serve to indicate something else. They serve to indicate days. And since seasons and years are literal time messengers, uh, measures, it's most natural that we understand these days to be literal days. And this is further evidence, I say, that the days of the creation week are likewise literal days. And while previously the days have been measured by the Earth's rotation in reference to the light source that was on one side, there was rotation from day one on, from this point on, these days are now measured by the Earth's rotation relative to the sun. And so they, as it spins around, each spinning around on its axis is another day. And then also indicated by these heavenly bodies are years. And days and years are respectively the shortest and the longest measurements of time definitely fixed by the movements of the Earth in relationship to the sun. The days are, are take place because the sun, the earth rotates. Each rotation is a day. The year takes place because the earth goes all the way around the sun in the course of 365 days. And 
So this is what the book tells us, that the sun indicates also days and years. Well, the first purpose of these luminaries is to separate day from night. The second purpose is to serve for signs and seasons, days and years. And then more briefly, the third purpose is to rule over the day and over the night. And the ancient practice of ascribing personality and divinity to the stars is if they were literal rulers, this is, of course, excluded by the Old Testament. These stars don't rule as if they're gods. They are rulers in a different way. They're rulers as servants. As Kasuda writes, the meaning is simply this, that since the luminaries are situated above the earth, at least from what we can see from our standpoint on the earth, it looks like they're up there, they appear to be ruling over it. And they rule over the days, they rule over the nights. And so this is all being described from the perspective of people living on the earth. There are these heavenly bodies that seem to be ruling over day and over night. And then in the fifth, uh, verse 15, a fourth purpose is mentioned. I forgot to put this in the notes. It's added, let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And of course, these words are pretty plain. You're able to see where you're going when the sun is shining. It gives you light to be able to walk and not stumble in the daytime. And even to a certain extent, uh, when the moon is shining, you can have a pretty good vision even at night to get from one place to another. But before we, want, before we move on, I want to stop for a moment that we can just marvel for a moment at what God made here. How perfectly, how faithfully these luminaries carry out these functions that I've just described. For thousands of years, they have unfailingly carried out the will of our Creator. There isn't a single rebellious thing that God made among the planets. They do God's will. They're His servants. And they've been doing it faithfully, without exception, for thousands of years. In his book, First Things, Gardner Spring exclaims, With what fidelity do they perform this service? With what incredible promptness and velocity? With what wonderful accuracy and precision? No one interrupting the movements of another, but all keeping their prescribed paths and performing their revolutions and their appointed times, and with what persevering obedience to the, to the edict of their great author have they been thus revolving in majestic order and harmony ever since the morning of their creation, and everywhere so eagerly observed as the unfailing chronometers of the universe. Think about that. They've been obedient for thousands of years, never once disobeyed. Be nice if we could be that way, huh? But this is an amazing order. That God set this thing up so far that it would just it would keep in the, these planetary orbs in their precise locations for thousands of years, continuing to function accurately according to His intention. The 17th century mathematician and philosopher Sir Isaac Newton. He had a mechanical replica of the solar system made in miniature. And at its center was a large golden ball that represented the sun. And revolving around the sun in the center were smaller spheres, and they were attached to the sun by rods at various distances. And these rods, of course, were of varying length. 
and they represented these rods, Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, and the other planets. And all of these were on gears, so that as he cranked it, they would all be moving precisely the way they do in their rotations in the heavens. And they moved around the sun, therefore, in perfect harmony. One day as Newton was studying this model and thinking about it, an unbelieving friend stopped by for a visit. Marveling at this device, watching as the scientist, he made these heavenly bodies move in their orbits all simultaneously at different speeds. The man exclaimed, my Newton, what an exquisite thing. Who made it for you? Without looking up, Sir Isaac replied, nobody. Nobody, his friend asked. That's right, I said nobody. All these bogs, uh, all these balls and these cogs and these belts and these gears, they just happened to come together. And wonder of wonders, by chance they began to revolve around each other in perfect order, with perfect timing. Well, obviously his friend got the point. The existence of Newton's machine presupposes a maker. And even more so, the earth and its perfectly timed, ordered solar system. This has to have a maker that put all these things in their specific places. Noting this order and design in our universe, Johannes Kepler, another believing scientist, the founder of modern astronomy, also the discoverer of the three planetary laws of motion, and the originator of the term satellite, by the way, he said this, the undevout astronomer is mad. He's crazy. He's just refusing to recognize what is plainly set before him a maker made this. It had to have been a maker that brought this into such a perfect order. Well, up to this point, our attention has been to the general terms about the production of these luminaries and the purposes of these luminaries. But now, in the third place, I want you to look with me and consider with me the particular luminaries. Verse 16, we read, Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. And as is the case with verses 14 to 15, the description is geocentric. It's from the, per from the standpoint of an observer on Earth. It's from the Earth's vantage point. And compared with other plants in the solar system, planets I should say in the solar system, the Earth is comparatively little compared to many of them, especially such planets as Jupiter and Saturn. But the Earth is vastly more valuable and important. You know, as you see the pictures of the other planets, you know, I watched a whole hour segment on Venus one time. It, nothing could ever live there. It's, so, it's such a hot, hot house. It's thousands of degrees in heat and so forth. And you look at these different planets, and then you, you see from outer space the picture of Earth, our home, the place where we live. It is so different, so beautiful when you look at it compared to any of the other planets. It's vastly more valuable to us because it's the place where we live. It fosters life, and none of the others do, and they won't. No matter how long we keep looking for it, I don't think we're going to find it all. You might find some kind of little drop of water somehow, somewhere, and, and extrapolate from that some kind of amazing theory. 
but I don't think it's ever going to prove this. The lights of the heavens, they were formed for the earth and not the earth for them. And in spite of its smallness compared with many of the other planets, it is absolutely unique in God's eternal purposes. Let's let's not forget this. It was on this planet that God placed man. It is on this planet that God created him in his own image. It was this planet over which God appointed man to exercise dominion and to worship him and to serve him. And it is to this very planet that God came in the purpose of his son 2,000 years ago to take into himself human nature and to die on a hill on this planet for the inhabitants of this planet. Didn't do that for anybody else, any other planet. And it will be to this very same planet that this great God and Savior will return again to establish his eternal kingdom. Forever, Jesus is united to us. He's forever our flesh. He, doesn't, he isn't Martian. He isn't a Venetian or whatever it is. He's got our nature, earthly people. And this is why the creation account is so geocentric. It's all centered around the earth, even though the earth is not the center of the universe. In verse 17, we go on to read that God set these luminaries on the expanse of the heavens. And likewise, in verse 16, the account is given from the perspective of somebody standing here on earth. But in spite of the way that these luminaries were all made to serve the needs of those whom God was about to create in his own image, it wasn't long before mankind, instead of gratefully receiving these servants, the sun and the moon and the stars, it wasn't long before, instead of receiving these luminaries as gifts, they began to bow down and to worship and to serve the sun and the moon and the stars. How tragic. What a, what a misunderstanding. Terrible misunderstanding. The great care with which these, these luminaries are described, it's noteworthy, therefore, And it's noteworthy that the account doesn't even mention these luminaries by name. Why is it that way? doesn't say anywhere here, God created the sun, God created the moon. doesn't say that. doesn't use the word sun, Shemesh, or the moon, Uriah. And this is so, I believe, because God did not want the people to associate the sun, Shemesh, with the god Shamash, which was worshipped as the sun god. God didn't want the, the, the Yare, the, the moon god, to be worshipped. And these luminaries, they're just material objects. They have no life of their own, no will of their own. They're never to be worshipped. And so we read in Deuteronomy 4, 19, Take heed, thus you lift up your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the host of heaven, you feel driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord your God has given to all the peoples under the whole heaven as a heritage. Already they were worshiping these things that were servants, mere servants, to meet the needs of mankind. But with these perspectives in mind, I want to begin by looking at these three types of heavenly bodies that are mentioned here. We're only going to have time to look at the first, the greater light, which is the sun. And here I'm especially indebted to Dr. Sephardi, I mentioned before, for much of the scientific information that he has provided 
A lot of the stuff that he writes, I've got to read it about three times you know, to figure out what he's trying to say, because he's a scientist, I'm not. But I'm, trying to, I'm going to try to make this kind of simple, as, but I think it's very helpful, some of the things that he's, that he's put into this. The sun is a truly remarkable object. It's by far the most massive object in our solar system. The diameter of the sun is 870,000 miles. It's almost a million miles in diameter. It's 109 times the diameter of the Earth. But when you take the volume, if you try to make the Earth like little golf balls and you put them all in, in one big sphere, you know how many Earths it would take? It would take 1.3 million Earths to, to fill the sun. That's the difference between the Earth and the sun. At its surface... It is 5,504 5, degrees Celsius, or if you want to take Fahrenheit, 9,939 degrees, almost 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit on its surface, which is the coolest part. Its core is 14 million degrees in heat. It has prodigious power in its output, 3.86 times 10 to the 26th power of watts. And its power is likely nuclear fusion, in which four extremely fast-moving hydrogen nuclei join to form one helium nucleus. That's what scientists keep on trying to figure out how to create nuclear fusion. That's what they believe is taking place in the sun. And the output of the sun requires... Four million metric tons of matter to be converted into energy every second. Every second, think of that. Four million metric tons are being consumed. It's amazing that it's not burning up. It's staying stable. It's heating us just as much now as it, as it did a thousand years ago. This is huge. And yet this is negligible compared to the... It's, it's huge, you see. What, the, what it does for, for one... For one second, what it makes, but it's negligible compared to its huge mass. Whatever it's burned up, it's so small compared to what it is that it's been unnoticeable in the history of the Earth. In modern astronomy, the sun is classified as a type of star, but it's far from ordinary. It is brighter than 90% of the stars that are in our galaxy. And most stars are small red stars that we can't see without a telescope. And the sun is also exceptionally stable. Most stars, they emit extremely damaging solar flares. And they, they, these flares are 100 to 100 million times more powerful than the solar flare that crippled the power grid in northern Quebec back in 1989. These other, other suns, these other stars, think of that. That was one time where it fried the electrical system for a little while until they could fix it up. But these other, other stars, 100 to 100 million times greater in their flares. Would you like to have that for your sun, one of these other stars? I don't think so. And the sun is white. It's not yellow. It can be carefully seen that it's white because you, as you look through the clouds on a middle of the day you can see that it is shining white not yellow through the clouds and that's why the snow 
And the clouds and the moon, the reflected light, it's always white light. It's reflecting the white light that comes from the sun. And closer to a sunset, it looks like it's yellow, but this is merely because of the atmosphere scattering the blue light away. Evolutionists, they believe that the sun is a star that was formed by a collapse of dust cloud or nebula. And this is called the nebular hypothesis. And you see the, what it is. And this is an important thing to talk about for us to understand. Maybe you've seen some of these pictures, outer space, where it's not just little dots that are in the picture, but it's this huge, maybe purple-colored or orange-colored gas cloud. And that's what they have in many other galaxies. There are these huge nebulae, these nebular formations of these gas clouds that no doubt have particles of dust and so forth in them. And one major problem with the idea... What, the idea is this, that they theorized that the sun was created by a nebular collapse. It was, at first, one of these huge clouds, and then it collapsed together. And one problem with this idea that the evolutionists have, it, it could be shown by the accomplished skaters as they spin on the ice. Now, as skaters that do their, their spins, they start their spin with their arms out. And that's how they develop a, a spin. And then they pull their arms in. And as they pull their arms in, they begin to circulate much, they begin to spin much faster. And the effect is what physicists call the law of conservation of angular momentum. And angular momentum is the mass of an object times the velocity of its spinning times the distance from the center of the mass. The distance, like if you have your arms stretched out as opposed to the arms being pulled within. And the law of conservation of angular momentum always is constant in an isolated system. So to give the illustration of the, of the skater, when he pulls his arms in, it's not any energy that's, that's changing, you see. He's spinning faster, but it's not more energy. It's, it's just the same energy as when he's spinning slower with his arms extended outward. The energy is the same. And that's why I call it the law of conservation of this angular momentum. So what about this theory of the sun forming from the contraction of a massive nebula, massive dust cloud? Well, if the gases and dust that were equivalent to the sun's mass were contracted into the center to form a sun, this would have caused the sun to spin very rapidly. But our sun spins very slowly while the planets moved rapidly around the sun. You'd think they would be going at the same speed if they were broke off the sun. But it's not that way. It's totally different. In fact, even though the sun has over 99% of the mass in our whole solar system, it has only about 2% of the angular momentum. And solving this problem, therefore, this is a huge headache for evolutionists. They can't figure out how this ever could have taken place, that this Nebulae would have contracted into this sun, and then these planets are going around at a different rate. It happened, dear people, because God made it happen that way. That's the only explanation that makes any sense. They've tried to solve this problem. One well-known solar system scientist, Dr. Ross Taylor, he says that when he admits when he's discussing this angular momentum problem, that he, quote, a predictive theory of nebular evolution is still lacking. They still haven't proven or figured it out. Well, 
I'd like to go on to talk about the moon. I'd like to talk about how the Bible speaks by way of the sun sometimes. It says it goes down and why that's not the Bible that Moses and everybody and God included were ignorant of what happens really when there's a sunset. But I'm going to skip that part because I want to close our thoughts. I think I've stretched your minds enough with what we were talking about. Um, I know I know what it's like. I, when I'm trying to consider some of these scientific things, it's hard work from my, from my little brain. I'm not a, not a scientist. But I want to boil it all down to some practical words before we close this morning. The first thing I want to say is when we consider these luminaries, especially the sun, this should teach us to place our ultimate trust not in secondary agents, but only in God. Why is the sun not been consumed all these thousands of years? Why isn't it not burned up all its energy? Why is it that it is so stable compared to other stars? Why are we not regularly being fried to a crisp by solar flares? This is all due to the hand of God. The subject of energy, it fills the hearts of people with worry. We're going to run out of fossil fuels. We're going to run out of this. We're going to run out of that. And they run around wringing their hands and they sign all these decrees and they come up with all these treaties about what we're going to do about it all. What are we going to do when we run out of the fossil fuels? What are we going to do if maybe this goes a degree higher and if the earth is going to start frying, they say? Maybe the atmosphere is going to get so wrecked that the planet's going to just it's going to go into oblivion. They're terrified. And it's no mystery to me why they're terrified. They don't have faith in God. They don't have a relation with the, with the maker of the universe. Now, I'm a firm believer in our stewardship of this planet. God didn't give us this beautiful planet to trash it. And the fact that there's a floating island of plastic and garbage in the Pacific Ocean that is the size of Texas, this is, a, this is terrible. This should never have taken place. Do we want our whole planet to look like that? We want our, our planet to look stripped bare like it is in Haiti where all the trees are cut down. We are responsible to take care of this wonderful planet. But we must not imbibe the hysteria and the fear that grips unbelieving people. Let's be responsible stewards of the planet. But let's not behave as though there were no God to keep and preserve the things that he has made. Now, it's no surprise to us when we see unbelievers filled with anxiety over the future of our planet. But when we remember that it is God who designed this planet, it is God who designed our sun and designed our, our, the planetary system, God set it all up. And this same God operates these things with marvelous equilibrium. When we know all this, we can trust in the God who made this knowing that the same power which with a mere word caused these things to exist, that same power obviously is capable of sustaining that which God has made. Let's not be worshipers of the planet. Let's not be worshipers of, of what God made, but worshipers of God alone. Job said, if I have observed the sun when it shines, or the moon moving in its brightness, so that my heart has been secretly enticed, and my mouth has kissed my hand. This also would be an iniquity deserving of judgment. For I would have denied God who is above. Job chapter 31. Evolutionists, they look to the sun. 
They look to the protostun, perhaps. They look to the accidental chance that chemistry was just right here upon Earth billions of years ago, started things up. And in this evolutionary process, they live and move and have their being, or so they think. They credit everything to it. It's, it's their God. It's what, what made things. It's no wonder they're filled with worry. It's no wonder they're filled with anxiety, with that kind of theology. It's theology. It's a religion. It's no wonder. It's, it's a religion that fosters terror. It's a, a religion that makes people filled with anxiety. Let's live and act as those who really know that there is a God who cares for us, a God that we can trust in, the same God that made the sun, the moon, and the stars. Let's behave, yes, responsibly with this wonderful planet. Let's not destroy the coral reefs. Let's not destroy the many other wonders that God has made. But let's also show the world that we know that we have a Father who cares for us. And then one other word. The contemplation of these luminaries should fill our hearts with wonder and awe. The God that made the sun and the moon and the stars is a wonderful God, amazing God. God's creation of the luminaries on day four, this should evoke from us great wonder and praise and thanksgiving. This is something that was of the heart of the psalmist. Psalm 136 begins with these words, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. And then beginning in verse 7, To him who made the great lights, for his mercy endures forever. The sun to rule by day, for his mercy endures forever. The moon and the stars to rule by night, for his mercy endures forever. In heaven, the elders fall down and before the one that sits upon the throne. And they cry out, you were worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Revelation 4.11 God spoke the word. The huge sun came into existence in a moment. And it's not that billions of years ago, a big swirling around of, of, of a nebulae coalesced into the sun, and a few stray rocks, they burst out, and that, that's where we have the planets and so forth. This, this is impossible for us to have taken, for as Dr. Safardi shows, this would be self-destructive. And this would never account for the slow rotation of the sun and the faster rotation, it seems, or the faster circuit of the, of the planets. And let's not, just, let's not just think about these things as if they just happened, as if, they, as if they're just an interesting thing to observe that we might go to a science uh, museum for and, 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 and read the fixed facts and figures about it. And why is it that we are just at precisely the exact right distance and millions of miles from the sun, but just the right millions of miles. So we don't fry or we don't freeze. God put it that way. And the idea that the wonders that we behold throughout the whole earth and throughout all of space, that all of this happened by accident, this is absolutely preposterous. Preposterous. A wonder-working God made these things. Let's worship him. Let's adore him. Let's delight in him. Let us serve him with all that we are and all that we have. Well, I was wanting to 
get to another application, but I'll have to save it for another time. This teaches us also about the goodness of God that made these things, the creatures that he made. Right from the very beginning, Genesis 1, we find that God is a really good God, a loving God, a gracious God, putting things together so perfectly for the people that he's going to put upon this planet, you and me, and then billions of others that are throughout the earth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we bless you for the amazing things that we see in your word, but also that we see uh, that the scientists have discovered concerning the creation that you have made, the sun, the moon, and the stars. We are anxious, O Lord, to study these things more because we delight in what you have done, what you continue to do. We pray that we would not take these things for granted, We pray, O Lord, that we would be filled with wonder and awe, that we wouldn't stare at majestic mountains and powerful sea waves and look at them like with the dumb stare of a cow. We pray, Lord, that we would behold them with intelligent wonder and awe and give you glory and honor. We pray, O Father, that you would help those in this room, perhaps, that are not serving you. They're enemies of you. O Lord, Bring them to the place where they surrender to you. Bring them to see that it will never win. They'll never be able to win against such a powerful God. And bring them to see that the best thing for them is to be in the right relationship with the one who has such power, who sustains such planets and the sun and the moon and the vast starry expanse that is out there who sustains it all. Oh, Lord, we do pray that we, too, would behave as those that, that are trusting in you, that we would, in these evil days, that we would not be wringing our hands like others who have no faith in you, and have no reason to have comfort in their creator. Make us different, O oh Lord. Make us to be a testimony of those who have patience and grace in these days. We pray these things in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.